0: Hi everybody, Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today, the full, full measure interview with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. as he talks about America's chronic disease epidemic, censorship and corruption inside our government agencies, the Biden administration denying him secret service protection, working with Donald Trump, and Democrats rigging the election. If you get elected president, what do you see as the first executive actions you take?
1: Well, the first day I would, um, uh, first of all, I will uh, pardon Julian Assange and pardon Edward Snowden. And uh, I will also issue, again on the first day, an executive order uh, forbidding any federal agencies or federal uh, government employee from participating in efforts to censor speech in our country to coordinate with uh, social media or the media sites um, to censor speech, and that and and I uh, and I'll forget. I, I will pass an executive order forbidding the CIA from propagandizing American people, which you know was always the rule in this country until 2016.
0: Would you pardon Donald Trump?
1: I I don't know. I don't even know what Donald Trump is being accused of, um, and uh, and so I, I, I wouldn't answer that. And it would be imprudent. You're not pardons. Pardons are for people who've been convicted of crimes.
0: Would you consider it?
1: I, you know I I, I would. I, I, I'm not going to answer that.
0: A Rasmussen Reports poll just found that one in three Democrats say they might vote for you if you were to leave the Democrat Party and run as a third-party candidate. What thoughts do you have about that?
1: Uh, you know, I'm to. Um, if the Democratic Party does not allow me To actually have a fair election. In other words, if they, you know, continue doing what they're doing, which is to rig the outcome of election, uh, then I would, uh, I would look at all options.
0: Can you explain in simple terms what the Democrat Party is doing to discourage your candidacy?
1: There's a list of of, that somebody's put out of 60 different things that the Democratic Party has done to fix the election to make sure that um, that. President Biden gets it or that they control the outcome. I mean, one of the most, I think, egregious thing is that they've passed a rule that says that any candidate who steps into New Hampshire, um, that no vote that is cast for that candidate in New Hampshire will, uh, will count toward them. And so I have campaigned in New Hampshire, I've been campaigning there from the beginning, and every delegate that I win from New Hampshire um, will go instead to President Biden. So that's you know, and and they have the potential to do the same thing in Iowa. Um, and so those are you know, those are things that um, that n- normally have never been done in this country before. Uh, the the Democratic Party is supposed to be, by its own charter, it's supposed to be neutral in the election. It's supposed to act as a referee. Um, But this is like if you showed up at a football game and the referee was wearing your opponent's uniform. uh, It's the same thing. The five days after President Biden announced his candidacy, the DNC endorsed him. That's never happened before. And then the DNC and the President Biden's campaign merged. so they're operating out of the same office. They have the same fundraising team and it's just one campaign, um, and you know it's more akin to what we saw in the Soviet Union during you know the, the Soviet era, when the uh, when the political party, in that case the Communist Party, was claiming that they had a democracy. But the way they controlled the democracy is the party alone could designate who the nominees were. And so the only people the public could vote on were candidates that were chosen by the party apparatchiks rather than, you know, the public. And we, we've all, always prided ourselves in this country on having a true democracy um, where, the, uh, where the candidates were chosen not by political bosses, but by the people of the states.
0: Why do you think the Democrat Party is so against your candidacy? Lifelong Democrat, Kennedy is a Democrat Party name.
1: Uh, I think the Democratic Party is increasingly dependent on corporate money, and that um, they, I think there's concern that if they elect a, a populist candidate like Tulsi Abbott or Bernie Sanders or myself, that the, the corporate faucets will be shut off, that it will offend their donors, their donor base. And so I think um, there's, uh, you know, I believe that the Democratic Party would rather see President Trump elected than me, because if President Trump is elected, uh, they'll continue to uh, to be able to collect money from their donor base. But if I think if a progressive like myself were elected uh, and challenged this uh, hegemony, this you know corrupt merge of state and corporate power. which uh, sustains both political parties. You know, it really is that uniparty, and both parties are involved with protecting those corporate donors, and they're the same corporate donors. Uh, and I think that frightens them that um, that that, uh, that that flow of money would be shut off.
0: What you describe happening with the political parties, something similar might be said about federal agencies and sort of how. The establishment, whatever that may be, is controlling things in politics. How do you view the federal agency situation I described, and how would you attack or change that?
1: Well, we see corporate capture across all the federal agencies. And, you know, corporate capture is a well documented phenomenon that happens uh, not just in this country, but around the world. But, but, um, and it happens at the state level and the federal level, where the, where the regulatory agencies become captured by, they become sock puppets for the industry that they're supposed to regulate. And um, we've seen that process amplify over the federal government over the last few years, and particularly since the Citizens United case, uh, in uh, it was 2006 or 2008, um, freed up the tsunami of, of corporate money to, into the political process. And so you we've seen that, you know, there's, this process this corrupting process that was occurring anyway to um, to uh, to accelerate um, uh, and and so but you know and I think I'm in a very unique position to be able to unravel some of that corporate capture because I've spent forty years suing the corporations that are the most active in that dynamic and but also suing the agencies. I've litigated against almost all of the federal agencies, the major agencies against DOT, um, against the Department of Agriculture, USDA, against the EPA, against the public health agencies, NIH, CDC, FDA. Um, And when you sue these agencies, you get a It's like getting a PhD in how to unravel corporate capture. In many of the agencies, I know exactly the people, the personnel that need to be removed. Um, In a lot of the public health agencies, particularly, there's a series of uh, perverse incentives that actually encourage the agency to become captured uh, by the the pharmaceutical industry. FDA gets 50% of its budget, almost 50% of its budget from pharmaceutical companies. That would be like you know, the EPA is a captive agency. It's captive by oil, coal, pesticide. Well, what would EPA look like if half of its money came from the coal industry? And if, it's, uh, if the flow of that money was dependent on coal making a lot of money, uh, we'd see, you know, agency capture on steroids. Well, that's what it's like for the pharmaceutical industry and the public health agencies. So NIH... For example, um, under the Bayh-Dole Act, which was passed in 1984, people who work for NIH can now make money on pharmaceutical products that they regulate. So if you work on a project that, a product at NIH, uh, for example, the mRNA vaccine, the moderna vaccine, uh, there are six. People at NIH who worked on that product it went through who were close deputies of Anthony Fauci, who was the head of NIAID, and those individuals were allowed to have march rights on the patent, so they will collect um, royalties one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year f- forever, and their children and their choice as long as that product's on the market. and so you know that the, the mercantile ambitions of those individual regulators ultimately is uh, is destined to subsume the regulatory function of the agency. You actually have people who are paying for their cars, their their houses, their boats, their children's education as long as the product they're regulating continues to be marketed in a widespread way to the public. So instead of looking for problems, which is what do you want the regulators to do to find all the problems in that product, their incentive is to, um, is to turn a blind eye toward problems and just make sure there's maximum uptake no matter how bad the product is.
0: A related question on censorship. The Twitter files revealed that you were targeted by government and vaccine interests for questions you raised and information you distributed about Covid and Covid vaccines, even when it was absolutely true. What are your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, they had to. The White House had to invent a new word um, when it was ordering Facebook and Twitter to censor me, and the word was because Facebook was actually saying the things that were being asked to censor are actually true. And for me, nobody's been able to point to a single post on Instagram or Twitter. That I made that was factually inaccurate. We have a very, very robust fact-checking operation at Children's Health Defense, and you know we had over 300 PhD scientists and MD physicians in our uh, on our scientific advisory board. So we had a lot of eyeballs on my posts before I ever posted them, and everything that I did was, uh, was cited and sourced to peer-reviewed publications or to um, in the medical journals or, or government databases. And I, of course, was very careful about that. So they couldn't find anything that I wrote that was actually misinformation, that was erroneous. They made up a new word, which is malinformation, and malinformation is information that is true, but nevertheless inconvenient for government. And they began censoring me on that. I was the first individual who was uh, censored by the Biden administration 37 hours after President Biden took the oath of office in which he swore to uphold the Constitution. Um, the White House was violating the First Amendment by by ordering the uh, the, the social media sites to censor me, and they they uh, the White House was using the threat of abolishing this Section 230 immunity that those that is critical for the business model of those uh, companies. Uh, Section 230 immunity is the section that says that uh, individuals cannot sue social media companies like Google, Facebook, Twitter for defamation, for defamatory statements that are published by, that are put online by one of their customers. In other words, if, if, if you wrote something defamatory about me, and published it on an op-ed or in a letter to the New York Times. I could sue you, Cheryl Atkinson, but I could also sue the New York Times for publishing it. And so the social media sites, when they were, you know, in their, their, their natal years, understood that if they had to vet the New York Times every letter that goes up and every op-ed piece by an outside writer is vetted by their lawyers to make sure that it doesn't include defamatory statements. Of course, Facebook can't do that. Facebook and and Twitter and Instagram cannot vet every single post with attorneys. they, They would go, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg has said it's existential for us. If we lose that Section 230 immunity, we will go bankrupt. And the White House, we now know, and this is all in Judge Doughty's 155-page decision in which he enjoined the White House from having any conversations about censorship with any of the social media companies. But in that decision, he chronicles exactly what happened and he chronicles that you know that the White House was threatening the social media sites that if you do not censor our political opponents, We will abolish your Section 230 immunity. Um, So it was unprecedented in American history. The government has never um, done that. I mean, I'm sure there's times in our history when the government um, tried to pressure media sites to to censor their opponents. But in this case, it was wholesale. It was systematic. It was widespread. And... uh, you know, there were there were literally thousands of people who ended up being censored. Mothers who reported that their child had been injured by a medical product were abolished. Doctors who saw patients who were injured or who had treatment regimens that you know that they felt worked to restore people they were removed from the social media and uh, and then any discussion of scientific articles, even publications of CDC's own website. That showed things that were critical of, of, um, you know, of vaccine safety. Those posts were of. And, uh, you know, it wasn't good for public health and it wasn't good for our democracy.
0: What do you do about that? I mean, we only know about some of it because states have litigated, but certainly Congress didn't do anything to stop it. The media wasn't a good watchdog policing, this sort of thing. And the Biden administration will say they did nothing wrong. So how do you prevent something like that from happening?
1: Well, as president, I would I would prevent it by issuing an executive order. Immediately, you can't prevent it forever because the next president can come in and you know put in his own executive order. But I, then I would try to pass legislation as well, so that just to make it and particularly the intelligence agencies. Um, need, you know we need to get a handle on them because as we now know. The FBI had opened a portal um, so that they could directly censor uh, Facebook and Twitter. And they were allowing the CIA also to censor people that they didn't want, censor discussions that they did not want to occur in public.
0: You have written about, litigated on, and researched vaccine side effects and vaccine injuries more than any other political candidate. I think that's safe to say, and yet I frequently hear you questioned by media reporters who are misinformed and claim that the true information that's documented is false, that you're putting out misinformation, and then they throw at you information that is actually false. It's sort of an Alice in Wonderland situation. How does a candidate like you that is clearly opposed by the establishment and your own party and many in the media? How do you pierce that and actually make a viable run?
1: Well, you know, there, there are now, luckily, um, other vectors uh, through which I can reach the public other than uh, mainstream media. If, it, if, I, if I was just dealing with the mainstream media, my candidacy would not have a prayer. But now we have this whole ecosystem of podcasting that you know is uh, it's actually bigger than the mainstream media. I mean uh, you know, CNN is getting a half million viewers a night, and um, you know at the same time that Joe Rogan gets 11 million viewers per podcast. So you can reach a you know, um, comparable number of people in the alternative of people in the alternative media now, and, uh, and that's been an effective uh, weapon in, in my arsenal.
0: You've spoken more than any candidate that I've heard about, about really a really big problem, chronic health disorders that are plaguing our society, our children and adults as well, such as immune disorders like juvenile diabetes, Crohn's, POTS, celiac disease, as well as disorders like autism, the epidemic that has not been successfully addressed even by the most well-funded public health agencies in the world what would you do about that and what are your ideas about the chronic health pro- problems we suffer
1: well we've gone to from having 6% of americans have chronic disease when my uncle was president to uh, probably around 60% now we don't really know because nih won't reduce won't re- uh, publish the numbers uh, or do the studies but i 1986, it was 11.8%. By 2006, 54% of American kids had chronic disease. And uh, and I did see a recent study that showed that one out of every seven kids has autoimmune diseases. So the the levels are just, are sickening. And we have the sickest generation of kids that we've ever had in our country. And we are the sickest country in the world. Um, and it, it's reflected in in the cost that we pay for medicine in this country for medical care. Uh, medical care devours four point three trillion dollars a year, and about eighty percent of that goes to chronic disease. So you know we need if we're going to survive economically. And, uh, uh, James Lanza who is was a, a you know a professor and scientist who you know. Um, published a report recently that showed that the cost of treating autis- autistic Americans, Americans with autism, um, will exceed a trillion dollars a year by 2030. So, you know, it's going to bankrupt us. But also, you know, these are kids who um, who won't be serving in the military and, you know, who are uh, won't pay taxes and... Uh, and they're being taken they're being you know um, being removed as as you know productive contributing citizens to the larger society in ways that i think are you know can't help but just damage everything about our country and um so and then you know the other disease as you mentioned the allergic diseases food allergies peanut allergies which suddenly expl- exploded in 1989 uh, eczema, uh, asthma. Which you know, my brother had asthma when when we were kids, and he was told by his doctor that it would never be a cure because it's so it, it was so rare that nobody would ever study it. Today, uh, one out of every eight black children in America City has asthma. And then the neurological disease, ADD, ADHD, speech delay, language delay, tics, Tourette syndrome, narcolepsy, ASD, autism, suddenly exploded. And of course, all the autoimmune diseases that you mentioned, um, and obesity. So, uh, it, it, we, we, have, we spend more per capita two or three times what, what European countries do. And yet we have the worst health outcomes. We have the worst health system in the world. How you know, do you change that? Well, you, we change it by, uh, by, by lifting the ban on studying chronic disease. Uh, you know, the, the clearly the chronic disease, chronic disease is caused by environmental toxins, environmental exposures. Um, and the but the environmental exposures, the, the potential, you know, are uh, glyphosate from pesticides, from Roundup, neonicotoid pesticides. We know this because they had to follow the timeline where the, the big epidemics began around 1989. Oh, so you have to figure out an exposure that hit all Americans, every demographic, beginning around 1989. There's a limited number of them. Um, the uh, High fructose corn syrup, um, cell phone radiation, and you know the PFOAs, which are flame retardants that were put in a lot of products, our children's pajamas and almost every piece of furniture at that time. Um, And and then the vaccine schedule that, of course, went from three vaccines I had as a kid to seventy-two vaccines over a very short period of time during that period, and all of those diseases by the way, are listed on the manufacturer's inserts for those 72 vaccines as potential side effects. So those have to be a culprit, too. Um, it's probably a combination of all of these you know, um, uh, insults. American children are now swimming around in a, a, a toxic soup. And probably every exposure amplifies the... Um, You know, they they all tend to work on the same along the same biological pathways, and they tend to be cumulative, so that they um, they're operating uh, um, with each other to cause all this damage. And you know, at some point, the children just get pushed off a ledge into into the abyss of chronic disease. Oh, what I will do as president is I'll immediately lift the ban on, there's certain databases where you can get most of this information from overnight, um, including the Vaccine Safety Data Link, and I will lift the ban on, those, and, and, uh, the CDC does not allow any independent scientists to look at that database, and I'll lift those bans right away. I will call the, the medical journals into the attorney general's office, and I will uh, and will tell them that we're going to prosecute you for, as the journals are now, you know, lying to the public, and you lying constantly, and even the heads of the journals. Marsha Engel, from the the longtime editor of the New England Journal of Medicine and Richard Horton, the longtime editor of the Lancet, are saying there's nothing in these journals that you can trust anymore. They've become uh, vessels for, uh, for, you know, mercantile propaganda from the pharmaceutical industry. And so I'm going to call them in and... um, and tell them that we're going to file racketeering suits against them because they're lying to the public they're committing frauds, and they're the you know the object of huge injuries to the public because doctors are relying on what they saw in those journals and when, when the editors themselves know that they're not true um, i will i'm going to go down to Bethesda to NIH headquarters, and i'm going to say to them we're going to shift a lot of our focus now from development of incubating pharmaceutical drugs, pharmaceutical products, which is what NIH does, allow them to treat the chronic disease that they're causing. Uh, And I'm gonna say, we're gonna start figuring out what's causing the chronic disease. Um, And there's a lot of other things that need to be done. We need to get uh, pharmaceutical advertising off of TV so that the television stations can return to telling the truth to the American public about health. Uh, rather than serving as propagandists for this very, very corrupt industry, this is the same industry. I'll remind you that brought us the opioid crisis, which you know we lost, last year we lost 106,000 American children. That's twice what we lost in Vietnam after during 20 years, and all of that gone last year. And you know originally this addiction. Uh, epidemic began with the with the oxycontin. Anybody who wants to, you know, see how corrupt the pharmaceutical agencies, you know, uh, uh, in tandem, the pharma, the pharmaceutical industry uh, in tandem with the regulatory agencies. Look at the Netflix documentary "Dope Sick" or "Bang you know, which I think is on Hulu. But if you think that's not happening across the board with all pharmaceutical products, it's, it makes no sense. It's it's happening everywhere, and they have um, and they're destroying the health of our country. So I'm going to you know immediately identify the, um, the the toxic exposures that are causing these epidemics, and then I'm going to I'm going to eliminate them.
0: I think there's general agreement, even within CDC, that this agency failed, basically got an F, at handling the COVID pandemic at a time when we had provided billions of tax dollars for them to prepare for a pandemic like that. And yet, from what I can tell, they're on track to receive a $2 billion increase in their budget this coming year. There's been no reform. There has been no mea culpa. What are your thoughts about CDC? I mean, my
1: thoughts are that the pharmaceutical industry controls our government. Uh, they control white House the White House they control the um, the Congress and uh, and so and they control the regulatory agencies so i don 't anticipate until we get a president who understands that dynamic and who is determined to dismantle it and unravel it i don 't think there is a solution
0: another thing you speak to frequently is. The war, or what you call the pro-war mentality, by many in the Democrat Party and the Republican Party, I think you would say. What are your answers or thoughts as to what you would do about the situation with Ukraine and all of the money that's going out the door now?
1: Well, with Ukraine, I, you know, I will settle the war very, very quickly as soon as I get into office. Um, the Russians have tried to settle it twice um, on terms that were very, very beneficial to us. And, in both cases, the United States government blew up those agreements. and why do
0: you think that is?
1: I think that the u s um wanted the war. they wanted to and and you don't have to people don't have to listen to me. They were very frank about it. I mean, Lloyd austin in march of twenty twenty two who's the Secretary of Defense under President Biden, when he was asked, why do we want a war in Ukraine? He said, because it gives us a chance to to, uh, to exhaust the Russian army and degrade its capacity to fight anywhere else in the world. And last week, um, in the Republican debate, Tim Scott said the same thing. Uh, Mitch McConnell has repeatedly said that so you have Republicans and Democrats on both sides who are saying you know the real objective of this war is to degrade the Russian army for strategic reasons and and Ukraine has ended up as a as a pawn in a proxy war between the United States and Russia. Uh, I think it's a bad Uh, policy I don't think our objective should be to degrade the Russian capacity I don't think Russians threaten the United States Um, they didn't uh, Russia had a defensive capacity but they've never um, uh, they've never done anything to develop a an offensive you know imperialistic capacity and um, But I mean, most importantly, the Russians made very, very clear efforts to settle the war. The Minsk Accords were fair. Uh, We should have encouraged everybody to sign them and we wouldn't have had this war. In 2019, President Zelensky, or um, Vladimir Zelensky, before he was president, ran as president. And you know, at that time he was a comedian and an actor, he had no political experience, but he won the presidency in Ukraine was 70% of the vote because he promised to sign the Minsk Accords and then and have peace with Russia. And, um, and what the Minsk Accords would have done, was they would have ended the bloodshed in Ukraine at that point. There was a civil war going on where the Kiev government uh, was essentially butchering ethnic Russians and Donbass and Lugansk. And that had been going on since 2014, when we, you know, abetted the overthrow of the democratically elected government of Ukraine and installed our own government. Um, and that government, the moment it was installed, declared, you know, illegalized the Russian language and uh, and essentially made the Russian uh, minority in uh, Eastern Ukraine into a um, into a a sort of a despised minority, and when the Russians started, I think Russians started protesting, um, they started killing them. They illegalized the Russian language, et cetera. Um, the Russian, the Minsk Accords would have left Ukraine and D- or Donbass and Lugansk as part of Ukraine, and, um, and they would have made, made, signed an agreement to keep NATO out of Ukraine, which is what the Russians have always wanted. They've always said that's a red line. And yet, Zelensky, won after winning on that platform, suddenly pivoted. Nobody has explained why, but clearly it was because he was being threatened by ultranaturalists within his own government and by the United States, which said, you know, which wanted the war. And then in March of 2022, after the Russians invaded, and he tried to settle the United States wouldn't help him settle the war. So he had to go to Israel and Turkey and they hammered out another agreement, which he, which Zelensky initialed. And it was basically Minsk Accords 2 to withdraw the troop and the Russians signed it and uh, Putin began withdrawing troops from Ukraine. And what happened, President Biden sent Boris Johnson over to Ukraine to, to force Zelensky to tear up that agreement. And since then we've killed 400,000 Ukrainian kids. And it's, uh, it's, it was morally wrong, it was strategically wrong. We, have, we pushed Russia into the arms of China, which is a foreign policy outcome that is terrible for our country. We've given the rise of BRICS, which is now threatening the primacy of the U.S. dollar. Nobody wanted to make bricks. Now 11 nations have joined it. They control 90% of the oil in the world. It's a, it, and and they, we erected a you know, this threat to, to the U.S. economy. And they, we did it because, by having a militarized foreign policy rather than a foreign policy that projects economic power abroad rather than military power.
0: Is there a conflict of interest with questioned dealings by the Biden family in Ukraine that were very lucrative for some members of the family, and now the Biden administration taking the lead and funneling so much money seems like unlimited money in a way toward Ukraine?
1: Yeah, I could not answer that question. I know that um, Hunter Biden was a part or a, 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 a hedge fund or the investment firm that he started um, was, the, a, the, I think, the majority owner of Metabiota, which is the company that was operating the uh, the bioweapons uh, laboratories in the Ukraine. But in terms of his um, and the president's ownership of other assets in the Ukraine or their participation in other deals, I just don't know enough about it.
0: Um what is the status of Secret Service protection for you?
1: The, we've made uh, multiple applications for Secret Service protection, and the, uh, the Biden administration has denied me. I'm the, I'm the first presidential candidate in history um, to request Secret Service protection and be denied. It's been pro forma. You know, they have to give you Secret Service protection 100, 120 days out. They passed that law after my father's death. Um, But they've been, as a matter of course, they've provided to multiple candidates much, much farther out. You know, President Obama had it, I think, over 500 days out. My uncle Ted Kennedy was given it before he even declared. And he was running against a president of his own party.
0: What reason are they giving you?
1: They, uh, they don't really give a reason. They just say that they don't. The White House has determined that um, it's unnecessary. So it's a very vague reason. The, the Secret Service itself has been very, very good and very cooperative and has been working with us. And you know, the, in our contacts with the Secret Service, they were very confident that I would get Secret Service protection uh, they have, I think, eight teams that are ready to go, and I think everybody was uh, shocked when the uh, administration. We, we gave a very we give a 68-page report on the threats, multiple threats to me. Um, you know, I've I've had home invasions by intruders, by mentally ill people since I um, since I started. Since I declared, I've had, you know, people, a man got up to the second floor of my house um, who who had tried to invade Kennedy homes before. Um, I've had a, uh, you know, a gunman uh, come to one of my events and try to uh, get access to me who had a false ID that identified him. Uh, um uh, as a U.S. marshal, including badges um, and uh, multiple badges, uh, lanyard badges, and a belt badge that identified him as a federal officer falsely, and um, that had uh, two loaded guns and shoulder holsters and, and multiple magazines, um, and uh, and another gun and knives in a in a backpack. Uh, and it's hard to imagine that there was any legitimate reason for him coming uh, to my speech that heavily armed. And so, um, you know, I think the, uh, you know, I think the Biden administration has decided to play hardball. Uh, and uh, and they know that my, you know, thirty percent of my of the of the money that we raise for my campaign, I have to pay. I have to spend on private security, and I think they would rather me spend it on private security than, um, I, you know, I don't really know what their thinking is, but that's what I imagine. You know, I would like to see the discussions that they had, but I, I don't think probably I, I will. Uh, I will.
0: Former President Trump, when I asked the question, said he knows you, he likes you, and he could see working with you in some capacity. What do you think?
1: I think that's very nice of President Trump to say that.
0: (laughs) Could you see working with President Trump in some capacity?
1: I don't think that I would. I mean, listen, when President Trump asked me to run his Vaccine Safety Commission, I I, I said I would. Um, So to back up, when he first got elected,
0: the story is he spoke with you about establishing a vaccine. He asked me to
1: come see him. I went to, uh, to Trump Tower. This was, I think... In early January of 2017, so he had just been elected, but he was not yet president, and he was putting together his his plans for governance. And he asked me to come visit him, and I I came down right after Christmas. I came to uh, Trump Tower, and he met with me. I met with him with Steve Bannon with uh, Michael Pence. Uh, and with uh, Kellyanne Conway and Hope Hill and, uh, you know, the sort of leading people in the administration, in the coming administration, and he asked me to chair a vaccine safety commission to look at um, the issue of vaccine safety, to look at, you know, whether the science was, uh, was adequate, whether it was being done correctly, and... You know to to see if we really had a cost benefit analysis of each one of the vaccines uh, to show that 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 by which people could judge whether they were going to avert more problems than they cause, and I agreed to do that and um, and that when when the when the administration got started um, I was you know, working with the White House. In fact, I met at multiple meetings with Peter Marks from FDA, with Francis Collins from um, NIH, with Anthony Fauci from NIAID, and with many other people in the, as part of the putting together this vaccine safety commission. And then Pfizer donated a million dollars to President Trump, and uh, and he appointed a uh, uh, Alex Azar. From inside the pharmaceutical industry to run HHS, and he had appointed Scott Gottlieb who was Pfizer's business partner to run the FDA. And at that point, all communications with us stopped. And um, you know, Scott Lee, Gottlieb went on to do an $88 billion favor for Pfizer for his former business partner, and then he left the FDA to join Pfizer's board. So. Um, it, uh, so things didn't work out with, on that.
0: Would you start? <clears throat> would you start a vaccine safety commission?
1: I don't. I don't know exactly what I would do. Whether I need a vaccine safety commission, what I will do is I'll open up the databases and I'll instruct NIH to actually do studies that they should have done a long time ago. I don't think I need a commission. I think I need. You know, we just. We need honest governance. We need good governance, and you know, and then let the science speak. Let the science go where it may, but let's do some real science on that. And I, you know, I might put together a group of top um, uh, researchers, people like Sandra Greenland from Stanford and, you know, other researchers who will, who to help design studies that are bulletproof that the entire public will see them and then I also uh, meet with the journals and make sure that those studies do get published um, because right now the studies that, uh, that, that give bad news for pharmaceutical products usually find no place to publish and if you do publish them uh, they get retracted very quickly. Um, anything that displeased the pharma pharmaceutical, the, the journals are completely dependent on pharmaceutical um, advertising and on printing preprint prints, which are very very lucrative for the for the pharmaceutical industry.
0: So back to the question, could you see yourself working in any capacity with Donald Trump?
1: I, I mean, I that's not a job that I would look for. Um, the vaccine safety commission was not a job I was looking for, and you know I felt like um, because I um, that I am that I might be able to help save lives, and uh, you know so it's hard to say no. Uh, but I'm definitely um, not. You know I don't want to be in government. I you know I I if I'm not able to, to run things. Uh, I, I would not want to be in government at all.
0: Introducing Whipped Seafoam Body Butter by Cyrene Cosmetics. Hi, I'm Star, owner of The Lemonade Mermaid. Enriched with the nourishing powers of cocoa butter, mango butter, and shea butter, our body butter whisks you away to a world of deep hydration. Experience the essence of the sea with every application, as this whipped delight leaves your skin refreshed, replenished, and ready to conquer the day. Visit TheLemonadeMermaid.com and make your skin sing with the magic of the sea. In this age of a highly controlled media landscape, it's never been more important to fight the heavy hand of censorship and support truly independent journalism. Go to cherylaxon.com and click on the store tab for a great way to do that. There are all kinds of fun and functional products designed specifically for independent and free thinkers like you, featuring slogans like, I tested positive for critical thinking, and I need to find some new conspiracy theories, all my old ones came true. Proceeds support independent journalism causes like the ION Awards for off-narrative accurate reporting. Go to CherylAckeson.com and click the store tab today. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that if you did, you'll leave us a great review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. Check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours. And now you can support independent journalism causes by visiting CherylAckison.com and clicking on the Store tab. There are some thought-provoking and fun products designed exclusively for independent and free thinkers like you, such as products with the slogan, I need to find some new conspiracy theories, all my old ones came true. Proceeds benefit independent reporting causes. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.